We thank you, Father, that we have such cause for rejoicing this morning as we contemplate the significance of the incarnation. As the author of Hebrews tells us, no longer do we approach Sinai's hill, Sinai's mountain with the fear and dread that our sin deserved because the judgments of a holy God must fall upon those who are, stand short, fall short of his glory and stand wickedly in their sin and in their depravity and rebellion against him. But no, because Jesus Christ is our mediator, because Jesus Christ is our high priest, because he is our Savior and Lord and has satisfied in his atonement and propitiation payment for our sin, we now come to Zion, a place of festal gathering with celestial creatures, a place where the just and the righteous gather made so by his blood and festal gathering with all who've gone before and all the saints who will be gathered into the great storehouses of glory. And we come, Lord, by means of a blood more perfect and precious and powerful than any other blood. Not by the blood of Abel, but by the blood of Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, whose own body bore the marks on Calvary that purchased for us free access, bold entry into the throne of grace, audience with a holy God. Lord, as we look to the events in Scripture and as we look to the, their meaning and their power and significance this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts to appreciate them, to live in light of them, and to be excited about them, Lord, to make them regularly a part of our meditations and our proclamation and our sharing to others. And if there are any lost within the hearing of this message, that they would be drawn irresistibly by the Spirit's use of the proclaimed word of Christ to come and bow the knee before their Lord and Savior, their only means of salvation in repentance and faith. Thank you for these moments we have together. Would you multiply them for your glory and namesake, Lord Jesus? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, we have the great privilege this morning of worshiping together and beholding the Lord's holy word. Would you turn with me in your scripture to Luke chapter 1? Let's consider this morning verses 46 through 55. Luke 1 verses 46 through 55 in a moment will stand for the reading of the word while you're turning there. Let me introduce this message. It follows on a series begun last week, which is seeking to trace the heart cry of Eve, if you will, through covenant history to its fulfillment and beyond. Eve had a heart cry we read in Genesis 4.1, something like, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And we surmise that given the promise in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of woman would one day prove to crush the serpent's head, though his heel would be bruised, we surmise that Eve was hoping against hope that perhaps Cain would provide for her a deliverer. And this was not to be the case, was it? Cain arose and killed his brother in short order, proving to be a depraved sinner, not the perfect one, not the one to come. Yet the heart cry of Eve remained. Would there be one in her lineage who would eventually be her deliverer and all who placed faith in Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the deliverer, the one to come? Yes, there would be. And so the heart cry of Eve continues another generation and another generation. And we hear this cry picked up through the course of redemptive history all the way until Mary. And this morning we'll consider her words as she sings a glorious song of fulfillment of the heart cry of Eve. Mary has gotten for herself a man, but this is a different man indeed. This is a man sovereignly conceived by the Holy Spirit of God to a virgin who would satisfy every condition and every necessary piece of the redemptive puzzle in order to secure redemption for all of God's people for all of time. 
With that introduction, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Out of reverence, again, we're in Luke 1. And listen as the Word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is Divine Arm Strength. Divine Arm Strength. This title comes from the center, and I submit the focus or perhaps central theme of Mary's worshipful song, which is this confession in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The aim of my message for you today is to consider and to apply Mary's cause to glorify the Lord. Why is Mary so earnest in her prayer? Why is she magnifying and rejoicing in the Lord her God? Well, these reasons are manifold indeed, and she gives a few of them in the course of her song, and so these we will consider today. Let me give you a little background for our series, in a little more detail. As I mentioned before, Genesis 4.1, the heart cry of Eve has expressed, uh, has expressed hope in a future son. Through the history of the covenant, this cry has echoed, rising and waning from time to time as the message is obscured in the sin of the people and then brought forward in prominent position through the prophets and specifically the word of God as it's proclaimed and recorded through history. This heart cry of hope in a future son echoes with rising clarity and intensity at providential points in the timeline of God's decree unfolding through history. For many faithful women through the centuries of old on into the New Testament, Hebrew, in, specifically in Hebrew faith and culture, this heart cry was especially acute for the barren. In other words, I submit to you that in the course and context of Scripture, the women who trusted that there would be a son in the future born to the seed of woman yet themselves could not conceive, sometimes appeared closer to the heart cry of Eve and indeed the heart of God, that there would be one, perhaps even a child from them, from their womb, that would hold out hope for the future. And so we see this cry unfolding in covenant history. This heart cry was especially acute for the wives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all fell into this category, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. Later, Samson's mother, we don't know her name, as I recall, but she was the wife of Manoah, the mother of Samson. She was visited by an angel, and she in her barrenness was touched by the miraculous hand of God and bore a prophet who would, in his own way, be called to deliver his people. 
though a failure in some ways. Hannah, later we hear, and this was the context of our message last week, mother of Samuel, echoes a prayer of thanks parallel to Mary's in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, as she receives the glorious news, raises her child to weaned age, then brings her as a gift to the Lord at Shiloh to serve with Eli in the courts of God. She offers him and a prayer of praise, thanking the Lord that the barren rejoice, becoming the mother of many children, even as those who had prematurely celebrated in their own pride and hubris are brought low. Now, as we come to the New Testament, there are two women featured in this same legacy, the same legacy of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, uh, uh, Samson's mother, Hannah, uh, and Hannah and so forth. And these are Elizabeth. We find her story in Luke 1, preceding that of Mary's, and then intertwining uh, the two and And she joins with the praises of Rachel of old as the Lord fulfills his promise despite her age. And also Sarah. We see echoes of God doing miraculous work in Sarah, wife of Abraham, as the aging Elizabeth celebrates as she conceives a child. And also she cries, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people, even as Rebecca cried ages ago. Elizabeth's experience also parallels, I submit, that of Hannah as her son, John the Baptist, would go before preparing the way for a king. You recall Hannah's son was Samuel. He too prepared, in a sense, the way for a king. He anointed, after all, the king, King David, who had received the covenant that his kingdom would never fail. He would be the heir of the eternal throne. And later, Elizabeth would have a child, John the Baptist, who would prepare the way, pointing the way, making straight, calling out repentance in the wilderness to all who will hear, making, uh, making the way straight for another king, indeed the king of kings. And so we see these themes and these threads woven together in the beautiful tapestry of the heart cry of Eve now coming into even more clarity and intensity still as it's echoed through Mary and Elizabeth. The history of Eve's ascending heart cry thus continues apace, does it not? Mary receives news from the angel Gabriel that she soon will bear a son. Note Luke 1, 30. And here we read, the angel said to her, that is to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Hear these threads coming together. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Judah forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary is perplexed, considering the physical limitations of this event that she received by way of prophecy by the angel Gabriel, but she soon realizes that this conception, the conception of this child within her will be supernatural by design. And just as barren women through covenant history have rejoiced as God touched them and miraculously sparked life from death, so by the miraculous hand of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. We read of this in verse 35, the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
He goes on. He uh, mentions the fortunes of another woman. We've already mentioned her, Elizabeth. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, verse 36, in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. At this point, Mary says, verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Do you see this long lineage of God's sovereign work among a people, barren, lost, sinful, hopeless, that hope, fruitfulness, life, resurrection, springing forth in their experience. Why has God written his story like this? Why has he accomplished these things and the way that he has done so? And gradually with increasing intensity and clarity through history, because he is proclaiming to us in all these varied ways and means that nothing will be impossible with God. Only a sovereign Lord, God of history, God of past, present, and future can write a story such as this and accomplish it by his holy decree in his perfect time, using such unlikely vessels as Mary and Elizabeth and all those we've already mentioned. What a glorious reality. So, just as the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the waters in Genesis 1-2, or tying the story of the incarnation to our Genesis study, uh, so, bringing life, and thus bringing life, the Holy Spirit, that is, out of the formless void. So it is the case that in Mary, in the situation here where Mary and her womb is involved, the Holy Spirit comes upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadows her. And therefore, thereby, by this miraculous cause, she becomes pregnant with Jesus Christ, and she will bear the Son of God. Nothing will be impossible with God. So, brothers and sisters, saints, and members of the household of God, all this raises a question, does it not? What expression of grateful worship might this absolutely unprecedented, singular, historical occasion demand? What kind of worship song would we write, ought we write, in light of these truths? Well, we find the answer in Mary's song, traditionally called the Magnificat, which is Latin for the first phrase, her soul magnifies the Lord. This is a worship song appropriate for the moment, for the reality, for the work of God through covenant history coming to fruition in the incarnation. And so Mary's inspired song is the focus of our attention this morning. I submit to you it's roughly a chiastic structure, which is, I don't have time to get into it today, but you might recall from other messages, it's sort of a symmetry of ideas, a poetic way of arranging uh, the of arranging a, a body of parallelisms. And so uh, Mary's song has these kind of beautiful, beautiful, symmetrical and technical elements. Additionally to this, it has eight, if you will, he has statements. There are eight times that Mary prefaces a work of God with the phrase, he has. That is, Christ has accomplished. And I can't remember exactly the tense in Greek, but this is something to indicate certainty. The use of the past tense here, uh, provides in this poetic expression an absolute certainty and the manifold works of God. And so there's eight of these statements directing our attention to the central theme of her poetic praise song. He, the Lord, the Almighty, has shown strength with his arm. The divine arm strength of God is evident in her experience as she is now great with child. 
the child who will be the savior of the elect. All the while, her song, Mary's song, the Magnificat, echoes Hannah's expression of praise as well. Hearkening back all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And you recall from last week's message, there are three major themes in Hannah's psalm. Number one, the holiness of God. Number two, the humiliation of his enemies. And number three, hope for his people. So the revelation of the glorious truth of the incarnation coming to fruition in time, what uh, kind of praise song does it demand? Similar to Hannah's, it demands a song that praises the Lord, magnifies and rejoices in Him because He is holy, because He will humiliate His enemies, and because He provides hope assuredly for His people. Now, her song also prophetically anticipates the kingdom and ministry of her Messiah, Jesus Christ, her Son and Savior. So there's a lot packed in here. Here's a heading for you. Reasons to magnify and rejoice in the Lord. According to Mary in her song, let us consider them. Reasons to magnify and rejoice in the Lord. Three major points. First of all, personal visitation. Mary receives personal visitation. An unlikely um, guest comes to her in the form of Gabriel, the angel sent from the Lord. And this uh, first portion of her song also emphasizes the holiness of God. The reason Mary magnifies the Lord and rejoices in Him in part is because she has received a personal visitation of the Lord, this revelatory event, and she rejoices in His holiness. Secondly, she rejoices in the Lord for deposing, that is dethroning, stripping of power, stripping of authority, stripping of influence, the proud, the exalted ones, the kings and false rulers and authority figures and any principality and power who might want to be a, a Sikh to dethrone the Lord or stand in His place or be worshipped instead of Him. The deposing of the powerful is a theme in Mary's song, and this corresponds, of course, to the humiliation of His enemies. And thirdly, this morning, the reversal of fortunes. The tables are turning, and this corresponds to hope for His people. The once proud are brought low, the once humble and lowly are raised up and exalted. These are reasons to magnify and rejoice in the Lord. Let us consider them a little more deeply this morning. Verse 46, again, Luke 1. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for. Of course, that statement indicates the reasons. Again, why she is magnifying and rejoicing in the Lord. And notice her first he has statement. For he has Looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That's he has statement number one. He has statement number two, verse 49. For he who is mighty, little clause in there, has, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Let's include one more statement. In this first point, verse 51a, thirdly, he has shown strength with his arm. Again, three he has statements. He's looked on the humble, he's done great things for me, and he has shown strength with his arm. Mary has experienced a personal visitation, and she is magnifying the Lord for his holiness all the while. The Lord has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. A very personal expression at this point. 
Now, Mary's song, however short it may be, however may brief it, however brief it is by word count, it spans a great uh, scope in theme. Mary praises the Lord that she personally has been the beneficiary of this glorious privilege and promise. Yet she knows, as her song closes, that it's not just her that benefits from this amazing truth, but this is an answer to the prayers of generations and generations. Nevertheless, she is awed that one as lowly as her, as humble and of lowly means as her, and with nothing to boast in her estate, a mere servant, the lower classes, has been so privileged that the Lord has looked upon her. Would you turn with me to number 622? Here we have a familiar passage of Scripture I trust. It's the benediction of Aaron. It's a repeated theme through the Scriptures. It's a prayer that Aaron in his priestly role would pray over the people of God. As you're turning there, I want to tie verse 48 to the benediction of Aaron. Mary says, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. This language of looking upon is significant. It's telling and it corresponds May I suggest to Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, quote, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Verse 27, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Immediately upon receiving this message from the throne room of God, delivered to her by an angelic messenger, Gabriel, this incredible servant, ambassador from the realms of glory, that announces to Mary, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Immediately upon recounting this to her cousin, Elizabeth, she realizes that, her, that the prayer of Aaron has been answered in her case. The Lord has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That is to say, the Lord has shown his face, turned his face of favor. The divine smile of the grace and mercy, the provision and the promises of the covenant-keeping Yahweh God have turned upon an unlikely vessel. The Lord has made his face to shine upon Mary. Upon her he has been gracious in granting her this great privilege. The Lord has lifted up his countenance. He has smiled upon his daughter. And upon her he has granted this great privilege and given her this great gift, the greatest of all, peace. Indeed, the Prince of Peace. The smiling face of the Lord, however, is not limited, as we've said, to Mary and her personal experience in this matter. But through this experience, indeed, if you are a believer in this room, because this event took place, because the Lord granted favor upon a lowly servant, because he, in his grace and mercy, turned his countenance upon this young girl, this virgin, so many thousand years ago, because of this, the Lord, in his grace and mercy, has lifted his countenance upon you, believer, in this room. And you, with Mary, can say the same. You are favored. You are blessed. You have been visited by the Most High. 
You have been looked upon. His gaze has been set upon you. Your humble estate has given way to one of privilege, blessing, and a kingly role alongside him, even at the right hand of the Father, alongside, or at the right hand of Christ, alongside the Father, ruling and reigning with him one day. Why? Because of the Lord, his love, his mercy, his grace is always working in such a manner to exalt the lowly, to bring down the lofty unassuming candidates for the unfathomable works of God. You see, when Mary received this visitation, she knew because of the angelic visitation, knowing her history, knowing the history of the scriptures she had in her hand, that she was joining the likes of Abraham, who was visited by the angel of the Lord. Abraham's family, Lot and Sarah, also had a similar experience. Jacob, while sleeping, was visited by angels as a ladder is erected in his vision between heaven and earth and the promise that one day that chasm would be bridged through God's plan, through his lineage. And one day there is a disciple who cries out, he sees Jesus, Nathan, and so forth, and Jesus prophesies and he says, you think it's amazing that I knew you were under that tree? I tell you, you will see the heavens open Angels, messengers ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And so the dream of Jacob is fulfilled. Nevertheless, Jacob received an angelic visitation. Though he in his own estate was not worthy of this visitation, far from it. She joins the likes of Israel in the Exodus, this wayward people who are so often strained from the straight and narrow and who needed a deliverer, uh, Moses, to free them from 430 years of slavery. And as they begin their halting journey through the wilderness for 40 years, they are led by the visitation of the Spirit of God in the form of cloud and fire. Mary's experience joins that of Joshua, who is encouraged and emboldened and given a message of confident leadership anointing from the angel of the Lord. Gideon, again, we already mentioned the wife of Manoah, that is Samson's mother, Elijah, Hezekiah, Hezekiah, Daniel. What do all these saints have in common? What do all these figures through covenant history have in common? Again, I say, all of them are unassuming candidates for the unfathomable works of God. And so was Elizabeth, and so was Mary, and so are you, and so am I. If you have been born again, if the Spirit of God has has arrested you in the course of your sinful wanderings, has brought you kneeling in repentance and faith before the cross of Jesus Christ, if you have laid the burden of your sin at his feet, knowing that he took it upon his bruised and torn back shoulders, head and bleeding hands and feet, then you, saint of God in this room, are an unassuming candidate for the unfathomable works of God. A resurrection has taken place. An unlikely visitation of God's favor is your experience now. And you will be raised one day to join that great throng Hebrews 11 proclaims of saints who worship the Lord and indeed are awaiting till all are gathered beside them in the realms of glory. Mary goes on, verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. The holiness of God is a theme in Mary's testimony, her proclamation, her song. He who is mighty has done great things for me Mary is acutely aware of her own insignificance and weakness. 
She has nothing in her own strength to boast. She knows this and proclaims as much. Mary has nothing to do with this moment, despite what some heretical religious claims might beg to differ. Mary is nothing. She is only made worthy by the grace of God. She herself recognizes this in confessing that he who is alone is mighty, has worked this miracle in her heart, in her life, in her experience. He has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Holy is his name, that is, set apart, sacred, one of a kind, unique, perfect, and absolutely true, and his word is coming to pass. In the course of all of history, now she sees the holiness of God in a new light as his prophecies of old are coming to pass, and she is privileged to play a significant role in this great, amazing course of history. Consider, as she says, the examples of the arm strength of the Lord. What does that mean? He has shown strength with his arm. Well, the arm is anthropomorphic language. That means using something of our experience as a human to explain a spiritual reality. So I have uh, some tendonitis in my elbows that decreases my arm strength. Why do I suffer from that? Well, I build in, uh, at work and uh, I... I'm a construction guy, and through repeated use of, of arms and so forth, some of that arm strength can deteriorate over time. This is a reminder of this picture in Scripture. The arms are the, one of the foremost tools of human productivity. We use our arms for virtually everything, even to gesticulate, you know, to emphasize our words by waving them around, to, uh, back in the day, hitchhike for a ride, to wave to a friend, to write a note, to accomplish whatever tasks we have before us, to text on our phone, and whatever else we do. From the mundane to the significant, the arms are an, an, a tool that, that we use constantly. Arms represent the intentional productivity of uh, human beings. And so God has primary tools at his disposal, and he has intentional productivity. What he sets his will to accomplish, he has strength to achieve. And what he sets his will to do, he always is successful. Who can compare? We think of arms in this way, but who can compare to the arm of the Lord? No one. The divine arm strength of Almighty God is an unfathomable concept indeed. Consider it just in light of the, con of the incarnation alone. Who besides the Lord has the ingenuity and ability in his arm strength to create or to make this set of circumstances come to pass in time? God becoming man, the divine taking on flesh, two natures existing in one person yet unmixed? How is this possible? It's unfathomable. Could we accomplish such a thing? Could we raise up a superman, a redeemer, a deliverer, a hope for our future in light of the cosmic treason our sin represents before a holy God? Never. Our every attempt would only incur more debt against us. Yet God, in his arm strength, has moved heaven and earth. And he has stooped low and become a man, veiled his pre-incarnate glory to take on flesh, be born of a virgin, to enter into this experience of humanity in order to satisfy every term and condition of our redemption. As these thoughts are dawning on Mary, and indeed through the course of the revelation of Scripture upon all the faithful, we marvel at the holiness and the strength, the divine arm strength, of our mighty God. Consider this season, even as it's traditionally a time when we take some moments to do so, consider the cosmic scale 
of the miracle of the incarnation. Now this is something that is a generational reality indeed. In verse 50 she says, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. There were older generations indeed than Mary who uh, in short order confess that this moment has come upon them as the Spirit opens their eyes to its reality. And when I have time to cover their words, maybe we'll do so next year. But consider Anna and Simeon as the record continues on into Luke chapter uh, 2. And reminding us that old and young alike who set their hopes on the coming Messiah were looking for the one who is being revealed even at this time. Joining the likes of generations who had preceded them all the way back to God's revelation of covenant hope in Genesis 3.15, as we've mentioned, where the very first evangel gospel was proclaimed to uh, the serpent by form of judgment, but in the form of hope to Adam and Eve, that the seed of the woman, what woman? Well, specifically in our text today, Mary indeed would crush the serpent's head, though his heel would be bruised. So reasons to magnify and rejoice in the Lord? Magnify Him because of His personal visitation, Mary does so, and your personal visitation, if you are redeemed in this room today, born again, and magnify Him for His holiness. Secondly, let us magnify and rejoice in the Lord following the example of Mary for deposing the powerful, bringing down the proud, humiliating His enemies. Verses 51 and 52, Uh, two more He has statements. Number four. He has statement. He has, 51b, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And number five, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Again, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Mary's song As I mentioned before, an introduction is prophetic. This song anticipates the kingdom and ministry of Jesus Christ. And it is not far at all in the record before we see evidence of the scattering power of the arm strength of the Lord as the proud who once exalted self-confidently in their own strength become undone, panicked, and begin to uh, take out their anxiety on those around them in profoundly uh, weird and strange ways. This we see as the record continues, or as the parallel record records in Matthew chapter 2. Herod is a picture or is a representative of a principality and power at this time who Jesus Christ was born to dethrone. Uh, Others as well show up in the text. We mentioned last week that Quirinius was governor, and he commanded a census be taken and all the world shall be taxed. This indicates that there were forces, powers that be in place that were managing governments and men, the fortunes and the uh, order and so forth. They were calling the shots. Well, a new king was in town, an unlikely candidate indeed. At first glance, you would never realize it, but this was the king of kings. He may not look like a king in his lowly manger, but he would soon scatter the proud. And he would prove to have in his hand a rod of iron that would dash the clay pots of Herod, Quirinius, Caesar, Pilate, whoever. Think of kings and leaders in authority today as so many cheap pottery shards across the landscape of history. And from his mouth would proceed a sword. 
And he would go forth as a champion, having conquered death itself in his own death on the cross. Don't mistake the humble beginnings of our Lord in the flesh. Uh, Don't be mistaken. He would be triumphant. Triumphant beyond all imagination. And the evidence of his triumph, the evidence of the scattering power of the right hand of God shows up very quickly. It says in Matthew 2.16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, at first glance, you might think, wow, this is just evidence of tyranny, the power of Herod, is it not? Well, why was Herod so flustered? Why was he so panicked? Why was he so undone? He feared the influence and the power of a toddler. He feared an infant would usurp his throne, and his panic attack begins to overcome him, and he goes on a killing spree trying to stamp out the seed by destroying all these children under two in Bethlehem and so forth. This is evidence that his power and his rule, his days were numbered and he would be scattered. And there was something deep within the psyche of this twisted pathological king that knew that he would answer to a sovereign over him one day. But instead of Nebuchadnezzar bowing and confessing the sovereignty of God, he tried to exert in his tyrannical authority his own sovereignty over the king of kings. But ultimately, he was destroyed. He was killed. He died. God slew him. And all the while, prophecy is being fulfilled, even as Jesus Christ, then as the son brought out of Egypt, returns to his homeland. And so we see the evidence of Mary's, and the prophecy of Mary's prayer coming true, even in the early days of Jesus' kingdom and ministry. Number five says, he has statement, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Speaking of Herod, I find the juxtaposition of the audience that he sought with the wise men to the audience that was welcomed on the day of Christ's birth to be significant. Who is the first audience summoned to the throne of the incarnate king? You could say that besides Mary and Joseph, it was the shepherds in the field. The shepherds in the field were certainly among those of low estate. Some considered them lowest of all. Because of their vocation, we are told they couldn't participate all the time in Sabbath worship because they had to watch their flocks. They were lowly and despised, rejected. They were not seen as prominent or significant at all. Yet to this group of individuals and outcasts, the lowest of the low in society, a divine summons was issued when the realms of glory exploded with the celestial armies, the host, and Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, manifested himself to those lowly shepherds, and they were summoned to the audience, the throne room, if you will, of the incarnate king. Unto you is born this day a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Welcome and come. Meanwhile, the reigning king, the one who appears to have the power and authority, not some infant in a manger, but the one who can take your head if you don't comply, Herod, the wise men snub him. Foreign dignitaries, ah, eh, we're not going to go back and tell him anything. 
We're going to snub Herod. We won't give him the, the courtesy of a second audience, and we're going to return to our land. Having been warned in a dream by God, who in his arm strength guided and directed these foreign dignitaries to snub the king that looked like he had power, meanwhile, the lowly are welcome to the audience of the greatest king of kings who ever would live, who rules and reigns yet today on his throne forever, never to be unseated, and will reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. And so right from the very beginning, we see that these tables are being turned. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Reasons to magnify and rejoice in the Lord, his holiness, the humiliation of his enemies, thirdly and finally this morning, the reversal of fortunes and hope for his people. As Mary's song Begins its third, if you will, and final stanza. We read the following, verse 53 through 55. He has, he has statement number six. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. Final, he has statement, verse 54. He has helped uh, his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring, forever. Praise His name. Mary, along with Hannah, celebrates the reversal of fortunes. She says as much when, when she, uh, in this poetic description, says, He has filled the hungry with good things. The beggar has, not, has now been satisfied. The rich He has sent empty away. Think of Joseph and his brothers how in God's covenant, uh, in, in God's uh, promises, pictured, symbolized in that relationship, how the tables turned. Uh, Joseph was once at the mercy of his brothers, and he was sent away to be a slave. And he eventually is thrown into this prison, and you could think, man, his fortunes could not be lower. He's certainly doomed. But Joseph is a picture of how the Lord works, and how the Lord in his mysterious ways exalts the lowly and brings down the humble. There comes a day when Joseph's dream is fulfilled, his uh, parents and his brothers all bow before him. And Joseph is in charge of all the foodstuffs of the known world. And it is upon his decision that the entire lineage of the covenant people of God is spared from destruction, a lineage that would one day give birth through the line of Judah all the way to Christ, to the Messiah of whom we read, conceived in the womb of Mary in our text today. That's an example from the past. There's numerous examples all the way through Scripture of this reversal of fortunes. He has filled the hungry. He has sent the rich away. He has sent the rich away begging for food, if you will. This is dramatically illustrated in the incarnation. God becomes a man and is killed that man might be redeemed and rise again with him. Mary and Joseph are turned away at the inn. Luke 2, 7, there's no room for the uh, parents, if you will, of the king of kings, God become man, the incarnate. There was no room for them. The hungry were turned away at the very beginning from a, a lodging that would accommodate the birth of this son. After all, this is recorded in the next chapter, 2 verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son, speaking of Mary, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, cloths and laid him in a manger. Uh, of course, a food trough for feeding animals because there was no place for them in the inn. Would this situation be reversed? Christ, when he was born, there was no place for him to lay his head. He said as much through the course of his ministry, foxes have uh, holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
of the world and their unwelcoming rejection of the means of salvation, sort of pictured here, turns away the Messiah. There's no room in the inn for those who do not realize who he was. Would these tables turn? As you read through Matthew, you come to the end of Jesus' ministry, a proclamation, his, his teaching ministry, and you find chapter 25 all about who will be allowed in and who will be rejected from eternal life. And we see Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, elevated to the doorkeeper of eternity in this picture. We see that those who kept their wicks trim in that parable of the virgins, they are the ones who are allowed in, but the door closes and those who are the foolish virgins are turned away. We see him seated on his throne of judgment and those whose sins are paid for and evidence this salvation through their faithfulness to his word are welcomed in, yet the goats are uh, scurry away, are uh, uh, ushered away to his left and they are burned in unquenchable fire. That is to say, my, how the tables have turned. The, one, the uh, one-time king who in his unassuming state was turned away and had to be born in a major would one day be the doorkeeper of eternity, determining by his standard of righteousness who would be welcomed in to the realms of glory and who would be turned away. This brings up our last and major point, the hope for his people. Notice how Mary extols the Lord. Again, as we've mentioned, now she, uh, now she acknowledges this corporate, multi-generational hope, verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This prophecy that has come that is being fulfilled in Mary's life at this time, she recognizes is something that has been prayed for and is indeed on the behalf not just of her, but all on behalf of all his people for all time. This last and additional reason for Mary's soul magnifying the Lord is indeed the knowledge that her appointment and anointing is the answer to, a genera- to generations of hopeful prayers preceding her. Generations of hopeful prayers preceding her are being answered in this appointment and anointing of Mary to be the mother of Jesus Christ. I wonder, as we close this message today, if you have considered reasons such as this, such as these reasons featured in our text and the, more broadly through all of Scripture, have you considered these reasons lately in the hubbub of this season that your soul might soar and magnify and rejoice in the Lord? Perhaps you are not a believer in the hearing of this message. Perhaps this, uh, this proclamation, this worship song of Mary is one that's hard for you to relate to because you yet stand outside the fold. You've turned away Christ and so far you have not found room for Him in your soul. You know, I, used, I grew up with this picture in my mind that Jesus stands as a perfect gentleman outside the door of our heart, knocks, and he's waiting for us to uh, invite him in and so forth. And there is a time where the grace and mercy extends to those who are outside of the, uh, uh, outside of the sheepfold and does present the invitation to come in. But that invitation is not indefinite, and the door of that opportunity will close And there will come a time when the tables turn 
the ark of God's provision for salvation, that door closes just as in the day of Noah. And you will know Christ in that time, but you will not know him as the merciful, loving Savior announcing his arrival as a lowly child in manger. Open up your heart and mind to who he is in all his manifest glory. No, at that time, after the close, after salvation is no longer available because God has chosen either to cut your life short or to return again, then you will know him, but you will know him as judge, as perfect justice executed in righteous indignation against all who have denied him as the sole means of salvation. The hope for anyone and everyone who places their trust in him, but without him, there is no hope at all. Don't mistake the clear dividing line of the Christmas season, as we come to call it, but more importantly, the message of the incarnation, Christ alone. In his humility, he is presented before us in our text today, yet shades of his glory are already coming through the text. And these shades of glory ought to move us, not just to confess a love for how gentle and amazing and silent the season is and all that, but the strength of his right hand the mighty divine arm strength of our Lord, recognizing that he has done great things for us. Holy is his name. And he (coughs) visits those with salvation who fear him. This is the message of hope this season. Let us close in prayer as we consider these words today. Oh Lord, we thank you for the truth of your scripture revealed to us in the person of Christ and in the message of the gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that as these moments of your providence come together, of your perfect decree, of your plan for redemptive history, and and the tapestry of your glory is, is seen in all its manifest glory, Lord Jesus, in these first pages of Luke, I pray that you would open our eyes to reasons to glorify you, to magnify and rejoice in our Lord. I pray that you would use this message to convict us of sin, to draw us close to you, to stand in awe of your manifest glory. I pray that you would equip us, Lord, to proclaim as the shepherds soon did to those surrounding regions that Christ has come and in him alone is hope for mankind. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to set our attention upon your holy word, to worship with your people and to fellowship in light of the grace Jesus Christ has made us family of God. I pray, Lord, that these means would have their full effect, that we would be thoroughly equipped, lacking nothing, furnished for every good work, that we would go forth to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.